God. I want to thank you too for your prayers last week. My voice is slowly returning. I'm still clogged up a bit, but I am convinced that your prayers had more power than Zycam. And so <clears throat> I am on the men. Yes, amen. You, you may not know this about me. Those of you who know have worked with me closely over the last several months and years may know um, submission to authority is, doesn't come natural for me. Uh, and maybe not for you as well. I have noticed that about one or two of you. I won't mention any names. Um, but it's not, it's not something that does come natural. I'm convinced some of it comes from our, our, uh, our history as a country. You know, that we, we fought and shed blood to get from underneath the rule of a monarch and a king. And I think from that time on, Western and American people have had real authority issues uh, ever since then and have felt that we should never subject ourselves again to another human being but always have the freedom to express our opinion. In fact, it's in our, our Bill of Rights, correct, you know, that we, we have the freedom of, of speech to be able to say what we think and what we want. Um, and so when we think about these things and we think about God as a king, uh, sometimes it's very difficult for us to make that transition from, you mean he's not president? Um, aren't we the Congress that gets to really put a check in a balance on what God's going to do? Aren't we elected uh, officials of the celestial kingdom of heaven that get to express an opinion and, and God listens to that opinion and then changes his plan according to us, the fourth person of the Trinity, um, to do what we tell him to do. Yeah, well, some of us chuckle a little bit because we, you know, the truth gets a little close every once in a while. And we have to chuckle because then all of a sudden, you know, the, I'm seeing Nancy Jane do this right now. <laughs> yeah. That's why I wore a turtleneck as well, so that when I tugged on it in discomfort, they might know. But nonetheless, it's one of the most important things of the Advent season of Christmas that oftentimes gets lost in the season. We know that Jesus came to bear our sins. We know that Jesus came to give us life. We know that Jesus came to, um, you know, love us and show us what love is. We know that he came to die on a cross for us. What we forget oftentimes, though, is Jesus also came to establish his kingdom. As the king over that kingdom. And that this was a promise that was made way back when in the Old Testament, as we're reading in Isaiah this morning, that why do we have Christmas season? Why do we have the Advent? Well, because God promised a king and a king to rule over us. Yes, he rules over us with absolute and perfect love and gentleness and meekness and kindness. But nonetheless, he rules over us. And we are subject to his rules and his reign. But isn't that the way that we really in our heart of hearts want it to be? Don't we want an absolute voice, an absolute authority, an absolute that would tell us in love and in perfection what we're to do, where we're to go, how we're to get out of messes? What can we do to bring joy and real joy to our lives? Wouldn't it be nice to have someone that, like that in your life and in my life that we could go to and get an answer from that knows exactly what the answer is supposed to be? 
Oftentimes, maybe that answer isn't what I want to hear in my flesh, but I always have confidence that the answer of the king is the one I need to hear. And it's the perfect answer. And it's the right answer. And it's the answer because of those two things that can give me peace and give me joy and give me freedom and let me know how to walk. So I want to look at that with you this morning, if you will, if you'll uh, turn in your Bible, says Isaiah chapter 9. I'm sure it'll be on the screen as well. But I want to talk about some of the characteristics of this king and, and why it's important for us today in this Christmas season to understand we live as Americans, yes, but primarily and before we're Americans, we're subjects to the king of heaven and the great king Jesus before all other things. And God promised this king. Now, look with me in these first verses. I want to show you the restoring light of the king. It's the illumination of a joyful abundance as we, as we look at these in chapter 9, verse 1. Isaiah writes, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor the Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have been living in the land of the shadow of death. For those of us that don't really understand what's going on here, let me kind of maybe get this in context. What has happened is King Ahaz of Judah, the kingdom of Israel at this point is divided into two different kingdoms, the southern kingdom Judah, northern kingdom Israel. And Ahaz is the king over the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's afraid that the northern kingdom of Israel is going to come and try to conquer him. And so he begins to figure out political alliances with other countries so that he doesn't have to so that he does not have to worry about um, the idea of Assyria and Israel joining together and coming to conquer Judah. And so he looks to Egypt and he looks to other political sources to be his protection rather than looking to God and looking for God's protection and God's counsel and God's rule over his nation. And so God in chapter 8 comes to Ahaz and tells Ahaz, ask me for a sign. Just ask me. Let me. I'm telling you, don't trust these other nations. I'm telling you, don't trust in the world. Don't trust in the world system. I'm your God. Trust me. Don't look around. Don't, don't look at all the nations around you and all the people around you. Look to me, your God. Ask me and ask me for a sign. And Ahaz in chapter 8 says, Ah, uh, Lord, I don't want to bother you with that. I'm just going to go my own way and make my own alliances. And God says to him, and I'm paraphrasing here, you fool. I'm going to give you a sign anyway, and here's the sign. I'm going to give you the sign of Emmanuel, a baby being born, and he will rule over the kingdom. And so we... We're going through this dialogue in chapter 7 and 8 about this with, with Ahaz. And then God comes to chapter 9 in this and says, the real king is going to be this child king. Now, why a child king? Well, for us in our day, we tend to really dote on our children, don't we? Our children are, are sort of the highlight of life. 
youth is really lifted up in our culture. We like the idea of youth. Most of us get some shots here and there and some, a little nip and tuck here and there so that we can continue to look youthful because we really like youth. It was completely the opposite in the ancient Near East in these days. What was really respected was age and experience, sort of like me and you, some of you anyway. What used to be really respected, you know, sometimes the good old days. What about the good old days? No, I'm just kidding. Um, But the idea of children reigning over men was completely bizarre and completely uncalled for and would have been something that was just totally uh, out of the realm of possibilities that a child would come and a child would reign. But God says, I'm going to go to the extremes, Ahaz. I'm going to the extreme, my people, so that you will know it's me, that even through a child, I will reign over you. And what about this child, though? When he talks about Zebulon and Naphtali in these first couple of verses in the land of Gentiles, these are the far northern kingdoms of Israel that are up near uh, Assyria, and they're, they're on the outlying uh, area of Israel. They're close to the Gentile countries. They're the furthest away from the temple and the presence of God. And as the Israels would look at this, they would look at the temple being the presence and the light of God, so that the further away you got from the presence of God, the further away you were from the light of God, and the more under the threat of Gentile influence you would be. And, of course, with the prophet Isaiah saying, these are the dark lands, these are the dark territories, but don't be in despair, don't, don't be concerned, um, Zebulon and Naphtali, because I'm going to bring light to you. And I'm going to restore you. The king that I'm going to send is going to walk among you. And he's going to bring you a great light. And even though you've lived in the shadow of death under the threat of Assyria, this king that I will send will deliver you from that darkness and will deliver you from that threat. And not only will he do that in deliverance of that, that, that present day uh, threat against you, but he's also, look in verse 3. He's going to enlarge the nation and do what? Increase their joy. So the purpose of the king coming is not only to alleviate the shadow of death, but also give an abundance of joy. Many of us have a a hard time really thinking of God in this way. It's it's often hard for us, it's difficult for us to think of a God who's extravagant. Most of us, because we tend to uh, want to manage things and keep things under our control, we want to sometimes take those qualities of ours and project them onto God. But when you and I do that, you must understand our, our, our fallacy in doing that is that God has no limits. God doesn't exist in a world or in a universe or in an existence where he feels as though he's going to run out. You see, he's not scared he's going to go on empty. He's not scared there's not going to be resources. He's not scared that he's not going to have the ability to provide anything that's needed for any given situation. He's not even scared that there might death might come into the, the universe because he realizes that he can provide life at, at a moment's notice. 
And so for God, the idea of being miserly or being withholding would say something about God's heart that he never has wanted communicated about himself. You don't have to convince God to love you. The king already loves you. You and I have to convince ourselves that we're loved. But the scriptures are clear that the point of the king coming is so that he would bring light and that he would bring abundance and that he would bring joy to you and I as our king. Our problem is getting over our own sin and getting over our own walls and getting over our own uh, preconceptions that there could be a God out there who is generous, a God who is benevolent, a God who cares for us, a God who wants to lavish us, as the Apostle John would say, in his love. But don't you see that's the whole point of the king coming? It's the whole point of the promise of a king, that that which was cursed that which was a shoot away, that which went into captivity, the king would come and rescue and restore. And not only just restore, but restore with great abundance. Think for a moment, if you will, look back all the way to the children, coming, the children of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. You remember they were slaves for 400 years, right? Slaves don't own much. Slaves don't have much. Slaves just kind of live a day-to-day existence making, you know, mud pits and straw and making bricks out of stuff. And that's the height of their day, is to make a good brick. But look at what they left with. When the deliverer came, when Moses came, when, when the one who came to those children of Israel to rule over them, to be God's representative, God's mediator for them, and redeem them out of the land of slavery, how did they leave? They left with great abundance. They left with great riches. They left with great joy. You see, that's always been God's characteristic. God sees his people who have moved themselves into sin and they have denied God and they have rebelled against God and they go into the slavery of sin and the stravages of sin. And yet God sends a deliverer faithfully every single time. For what purpose? The purpose to bring them light. To take them out of the shadow of death that he might restore them and restore them abundantly. And God has always promised that. Look ahead forward to our day to day, our day to day. The things that have put you and I in bondage, those places that we worry, those places that we are so entrapped in our own flesh. Those things that wake us up at three in the morning and we just wonder and we wring our hands, how will this be solved? What's going to happen? Where am I going to be? What's going to take place tomorrow? Don't you know that the king has come for you? That the king loves you? And the king will deliver you and bring great light into your darkness. No matter what prison you're in right now, No matter how you got there, the purpose of understanding the king has come is so that you know you can be released and restored with great abundance and with great joy. It's why there is Christmas. It's why we remember that we have Christmas, to remember that God sent a king to bring us a restoring light and an illumination of joyful abundance.
Well, not only that, let me get you to look to about the reign of the king. I'm sorry, the freedom of the king. It's a purchase of peace. Look in verses 4 and 6 with me. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for the burning. It will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. What on earth is Isaiah talking about? Well, he's hearkening back to the book of Judges. Remember Gideon, right? Gideon came, was going to fight the Midianites. And, and what, what did God tell him to do? Reduce your army size. You remember that, don't you? And Gideon went from like 300,000 men down to 30,000 men, right? And, and then God told him what? Do it again. And, 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 and Gideon did it. At this point, I'm questioning. I don't know about you, but I'm wondering, hey, God, let me interject some opinion here. I realize you're the king, but it's time for a subject to give you a little advice. You're putting me in some risky territory. But nonetheless, we remember Gideon did that again, right? And then one more time, what happened? To what? It was like 30 men? Huh? 300? Wrong decimal point. But it was a miraculous number. Why, why would Isaiah, in conjunction with this king, refer back to this event with Gideon? Because he's saying, it's going to be miraculous. The reign of the king is miraculous. It's going to be so peaceful that the only way that this kind of peace could be accomplished is that it's accomplished in a miraculous way by the king of all kings. In the same way that God defeated the Midianites on Gideon's behalf. That it had to be obvious to the whole world that God was on the side of, of his people. That God was next to his people. That even in the riskiest situations that God would fight his, their battles for them and with them. This king is fighting the battles for his people still. And just as the same way that the Midianites were defeated, so will your enemies be defeated. In the same way that he stood beside them in the book of Judges, the same way he stands beside the people in the prophet Isaiah, and the same way that he came to stand with his people on Calvary is the same way that he stands with you and I today. That this king wants you and I to understand he has the ultimate peace for us. How can this be? My world seems so chaotic. My life seems so out of control. Everything's just falling apart around me. Because all of those things that are more important to me than him have to crumble. One thing about our king, he will not allow you and I to have any other kings before him. He will give you and I absolute love. He will give you and I absolute peace. He will give you and I absolute abundance. He will give you and I absolute authority. He'll give you and I everything in heaven there is to give to you and I. But he will not give us reduced glory on his part. 
It is his mandate. It is his command. It is his right as the king to demand the ultimate love and loyalty from his subjects. In exchange for that, he gives us his life. You know what's been really hard for me to get over these six decades of life? Is God is much more interested in my joy than he is my happiness. God is much more interested in my joy than my happiness. I heard a very well-known minister, if I said the name, everyone in this room would know it. And one of the most uh, horrible things I heard come out of this person's mouth was this. That God's main interest is you being happy. How dare we settle for that? Why would we ever want to settle for happiness when we can have joy? Happiness is temporal. Happiness is fading. Joy is forever. Joy is unlimited. Happiness is limited to happenings. Joy is eternal. But for absolute allegiance and absolute love, you and I get absolute joy. The reign of the king, I'm sorry, the freedom of the king is this peace that you and I live in from this point on. You see, it's an uncommon salvation for an, by an uncommon means of a child that brings you and I uncommon peace. I don't know about you. I, I, um, I forget how imprisoning fear is sometimes. But it's the strongest prison in life is a phobia, a fear. It keeps us from moving. It keeps us from accomplishment. It keeps us from joy. It keeps us from trusting. It keeps us angry and bittered and embittered. And it keeps us judgmental. That's why Jesus would say through, again, the Apostle John, that perfect love casts out fear. You and I are not meant to be fearful people. We're meant to be, (coughs) excuse me, the most courageous people ever existed in mankind's history. We're to be a bold, courageous, grace-filled, humble people. Why? How? Because the king reigns, and we are his subjects, and he is our king. And the whole reason for us to have this annual reminder of that is so that we'll remember Freedom is more powerful than fear. Think about it. What are you afraid of? What's your deepest fear? I'll be vulnerable enough to share with you one of my significant fears. I'm learning to get over it, so I don't mind sharing it with you. But abandonment. I'm I'm scared to death of being alone. Have been all my life. Or being rejected by people. 
It's the most interesting thing that God would call me in a, into a position within his body where you receive the highest criticism from the most people possible. Maybe because I thought abandonment was an idol or a fear that I needed to work through. Maybe that's why God called me to this. But I want to tell you something. As I realize that Jesus is never going to abandon me, as I, as I understand that more and more, that my Lord is faithful to me no matter where my faith is on the scale of faith, no matter where I have failed or no matter where I'm succeeding, Jesus is with me. Whether I'm flat on my face or walking tall, my Christ lives with me, fights for me, restores me, brings me joy, and wants me to know his peace more and above, more and above anything else in this world, the more free I feel to be me. I can walk through life not looking over my shoulder. I can converse with people more genuinely and more authentically because I'm not afraid of them leaving me because I know the Lord never will. I'm willing to risk and do things for Christ's sake, knowing that I've already earned my Father's pleasure in the Son. You see, the King came to reign so that I might know peace. And not only that, the reign of the king is this, that dismay will be no more. Look at verse 7 and 9 with me. And of, in the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. What is overwhelming you? What is isolating you? What is causing you great angst and fear in life? Through faith in the reign of Jesus, it can become no more. The day is coming at the return of the king again as you and I live in this in-between time of his first coming and the guarantee of his second coming. He tells us to have faith that the seeds the inauguration of that kingdom have already begun in the hearts of his people. It's already began in the hearts of his people. That you and I have access to a peace that is beyond our understanding. That you and I have a freedom to know that God's not going to be angry because of Jesus. And because of that, we don't have to be overwhelmed anymore by anything. This word dismay, this idea of, of being overwhelmed runs throughout Scripture, does it not? When, G, uh, when God tells people all through the Bible, tells his people, don't be afraid, do not be dismayed. Don't be undone, don't be overwhelmed, don't, don't feel like you're in despair. Fear not. Why? For I am is with you. It is the whole point of the Advent season to remember God came. To establish his reign, his kingdom. And to purchase you and I as subjects within that kingdom. So that we might be the light of freedom to the world that's in bondage, in bondage and fear of the most horrific fear there is. The fear of death. 
And yet, we understand from the Psalms that darkness is even light to God. And we understand the promise of our King that said He would never leave us nor forsake us. Therefore, you and I never need to fear darkness. We'll never be alone. We'll never be without Him. How do you think Paul, the Apostle, lived like the courage that he had? Because he understood he had a king that was bigger than Caesar. He understood he had a king that was higher than the high priest of Israel. And he saw being with that king as the highest reward versus being here. Because his confidence was so great in the love of his king for him that he would not be dismayed. He would not be overwhelmed. He would not be afraid. Psalm 118 tells us this, that why should we be afraid when God is on our side? Shame on us when we reduce that down to a political narrative or a boundary narrative. When the people of God need to understand our politics are subject to the King of, king of Kings and that our Lord has no boundaries. And his people come from all tribes and race and people groups. And it will expand forevermore. But we can have confidence even in the expansion of this multicultural kingdom that the king is with us and he's on our side. I had great confidence in my dad growing up. I kind of grew up in a Old-fashioned, leave it to beaver home. That's not a good reference anymore, is it? I don't know of a good reference anymore for that kind of household. If you're below the age of 45, it used to be a time when sort of the male of the household was considered the figurehead. He was sort of the, he was sort of the dude in the house. And the mother, the mother was um, a loving, caring, nurturing. I'm going down a bad road here. Um, <laughs> just leave it at that. Anyway, so I say all this to say this. My mom, I, my mom used to assure us that our dad was the head of the house, that we didn't have anything to be afraid of. The dad, dad would watch over us. Dad would care for us, and, and dad would do these things for us. And she said, but I want you children never to be mistaken. I'm the neck that turns the head. <laughs> as funny as that is, as true as that was in my house, that can never be true about us. You and I will never be the neck that turns the head of the, of the church. The head of the church is the king of the church, the Lord Jesus and he turns us where we go. He shows us the path. He leads the way. He gives us the marching orders. He requires the allegiance. But he lightens the path. And he gives us eternal life. And the promise that every enemy that we have, he will defeat. You have to ask the question, why? Why? And everything that I've said today, why? 
This morning we light the Advent candles. Anyone know, um, besides you guys, which candle that was? Huh? Right, Peggy, the love candle. It reminds us that the whole reason for this, the whole reason for this, the whole reason for your breath is that the king loves you. With an undying love. With an unlimited love. With a love that doesn't hold back anything. A love so deep and so passionate and so wanting for you that he would shed his blood. That this king would come as a child to grow and to reign and to die to purchase you to be his. Never minimize that. It's the whole point of the story. It's the whole point of Christmas. You are deeply, eternally, unfathomably loved by God. And your king loves you deeply. How can we be different? So what? What does this mean to us? Well, I would suggest to us three things this morning. First is, because God restores, I can rejoice. Because I know I have a God of restoration who's continually restoring, I can have rejoicing. I can be at joy knowing God's using everything in my life, even those things that feel destructive, to bring restoration to me and to you. We don't need to fret about the future. We don't need to worry about what's next on the plan. We don't need to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow because the king has authority over tomorrow and he's going to use tomorrow for your good. He's going to use some of the worst things in your life for the best things of your eternity. Secondly, because Christ is one, I can dwell in safety. Because Jesus was victorious even over the ultimate enemy of death, of Satan himself, I can live in freedom. I don't know if anyone's given you permission lately to be free enough to have some joy, but it's really okay. It's okay for God's people to be happy. It's okay for you to smile. It's okay for you to laugh sometimes. It really is. It's not going to offend anybody in heaven. And then thirdly, because the king reigns, I can live in and at peace. Because the king reigns, you can live in peace with him because he he has um, conquered the enemy and has victory and sits on his throne so that you could have peace with him, but also that you might be at peace because you realize your king's on the throne. It can be different this year. Your life can be different from this day forward. Maybe this morning you never said, Jesus, be my king. 
I'm going to take a moment of silence and offer you that opportunity in silence. I'll give you a short little prayer. You can pray silently after me if you'd like. And maybe you're a believer and you say, Jesus, I have felt isolated. I have felt afraid. I've lived in the prison of my own fears. I'll give you the opportunity to pray that your king would come and show you a great light. That even in your fear, he loves you. And even in your isolation, he loves you. And he's restoring you right now, even today. Let's pray.